0: Production made possible in part by MedPlus Advantage. You're listening to Radio Rounds, a talk show created and hosted by medical students and physicians in training, where today's stories are told by tomorrow's doctors. I'm Imran Ali. Coming up on today's
1: episode, getting the right diagnosis. In general, it's, it's easier to deal with uh, systems problems, like doctors not washing their hands, wrong-sided surgery, so on than it is to deal with cognitive problems, simply because cognitive function is so much more complex, and it isn't linear. You can't just make a simple algorithm because the nervous system works in parallel processing. So it's a much more complicated and more challenging problem, but by the same token, it's also a much more interesting uh, problem. More on making sure clues
0: from the patient are not missed in making a diagnosis and on how medicine can be a truly rewarding profession. We hear from Dr. Martin Samuels of Harvard Medical School right now on Radio Rounds. Welcome to Radio Rounds. Today we'll hear the last in our series of interviews with Dr. Martin Samuels, Chairman of the Department of Neurology at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, and Professor of Neurology at Harvard Medical School. Last week, Dr. Samuels discussed cognitive errors in medicine. This week, he'll discuss what we can do as physicians to avoid making those diagnostic errors. And we'll close our series with some inspirational thoughts on medicine as a profession. Here's our correspondent, Lakshman Swami. A resident in internal medicine from Boston.
2: What do you think doctors can do to prevent getting caught in some of these cognitive traps?
1: Well, that's a that's a very interesting question uh, because some some of the traps are mutually exclusive. So that you can try to ab- avoid being stubborn, right? Uh, which is good, uh, and you can avoid it so much that you become so indecisive that you're useless, right? <laughs> so you become a doctor who can't decide anything. Uh, because uh, because you're always thinking of alternative diagnoses. That's that's just as bad, right? So there's obviously a happy medium. You have to be able to decide things based on incomplete data. But when something glaring faces you, you have to be willing to change. And that's a very thin line. And that's what that's what great clinicians are like. They're always changing. They're always learning. And they're always making mistakes. So, I mean, we're going to make mistakes for the rest of my career for the rest of my life. I'm positive of that. Now, we obviously don't, I don't want people to get the idea that I think mistakes are a good thing for patients, but we're not trying to hurt people. And some mistakes, of course, can be very serious. We don't want to take out the wrong kidney, for example. So for, for certain categories of error, there are some fairly simple solutions, which are really system solutions. Uh, and my colleague here, Atul Gawande, who is a surgeon here at the Brigham, has been very interested in this. He's gone to other industries, like the airline industry, looked uh, at them to see how they have reduced their air rates. And they do, they do things like lists. They, uh, the pilots have a checklist. They always do the checklist. Uh, he's now introduced this into surgery. And there's some evidence already developing that that's probably helpful, that you can reduce those kinds of errors. There are ways of uh, doing systems reviews of uh, films, MRIs, x-rays, and so on, Uh, second person reading them, uh, getting them into an electronic uh, system, and if there's any inconsistency, to have a third person look at them automatically. So there are uh, many tricks. There's uh, a number of um, decision support systems that uh, some clever people are working on that'll help doctors to trigger them that might even say to you, uh, don't you think the absence of dementia in this patient uh, isn't that consistent with vitamin B12 deficiency? And then you that, that might trigger you to say to yourself, that's right, it uh, that is inconsistent. But you can imagine how complicated these systems would be. In general, it's, it's easier to deal with with the system's problems, like doctors not washing their hands, wrong-sided surgery, so on, than it is to deal with cognitive problems, simply because cognitive function is so much more complex, and it isn't linear, right? You can't just make a simple algorithm because the nervous system works in parallel processing. So it's a much more complicated and more challenging problem, but by the same token, it's also a much more interesting uh, problem, my own feeling is that you you're constantly one is constantly in the process of preventing certain errors so that you're free to make other errors <laughs> and then you work on those errors, and I think it's an endless process It's no different at all than learning to play a musical instrument. I think that uh, if you ask any musician, no matter how talented, are you finished learning, are you finished making mistakes uh, there isn't any sane person <laughs> who would say oh yes i've I've got that perfect, Uh, that just doesn't happen, it's not the way the brain works.
2: When we'd spoken to Dr. Marshall Wolf, also here at the Brigham earlier, so much of what you need is just in the patient's history. And it sounds like a lot of these errors are, maybe not necessarily could have been avoided, but a lot of the errors are coming out of, well, we ignored something in the patient's history that we shouldn't have, or we didn't ask quite the right questions because we were thinking too much of something else. As a neurologist, uh, how much do you feel like that relationship with the patient and the history-taking factors into what you do as a doctor?
1: With regard to the comment that Dr. Wolf made, um, Marshall Wolf is a master uh, clinician, and he's learned from experience, uh, and I think correctly, that uh, uh, it's, it's almost always in the history and the exam and that uh, most of the other things we do are actually misleading, and they lead to incidentalomas and false positives. And uh, th- this is actually a very dangerous problem uh, because uh, there is a trend in our in our profession, unfortunately, leading from this error hysteria that we've been talking about to a uh, to a defensive state in which doctors. Um, are are themselves believing and society is believing that that all errors can be prevented by the use of gadgets and and the most dangerous gadget is the computer so that the idea that the electronic medical record uh, is the cure for this problem is an extremely naive idea again I am not against computers you're hearing it ringing in the background here in my office and uh, you know it's a very important part of my life Uh, but it's a tool uh, and and it is not a brain. Uh, the electronic medical record, the way it now stands, and uh, what's been ca- called meaningful use of the electronic medical record, has put a block between the patient and the doctor. I think if you look at old movies of doctors seeing patients, you can see that the, the doctor and the patient are looking at each other in the eyes. Um, now the doctor is frequently looking in an, in, a, in the opposite direction while they're talking to the patient. It's no wonder that they don't notice the sadness in the person's eyes or the Parkinson's disease in the person's uh, face. Uh, they're not looking at the person. And that is a sign of, uh, of a change and a loss of the doctor-patient relationship, uh, which, um, which we will not get back that easily. I think it's one thing to give it away. Uh, but once it's gone... It's going to be very, very difficult to get society to trust us the way they have trusted us in the past. I mean, if you think about it, people come to doctors, they will tell them anything, they will take their clothes off in front of them, they will expect you to keep this all confidential they will they expect you to put their interests above the interest of all others, like like your lawyer and uh, I'm certainly uh, sensitive to the issues of the cost of medical care and the idea of public health, but I think if some of us don't maintain the, the primacy of that sacred relationship between the patient and the doctor, then the whole thing will fall like a house of cards and we'll have technologists taking care of us. And uh, I think you can see it happening in this country and around the world. So I think uh, what what Dr. Wolf tells you about that is absolutely correct. And I think if you look the other way and fill in little boxes in the computer, uh, you you will never ever get any good at it.
2: There's so much in what you just said. One of one made me think of what one of my uh, one of my colleagues, Doctor. Well, now he's Doctor. Andrew Abraham. He just graduated. He told me something that I thought fitted really well. He said, "What you should do is sit with patients and stand with computers, because really, when you're with a patient, that's where you should be." And everything else, no matter if it's harder to document later, if it saves time or anything, as unrealistic as it is sometimes, that's really what medicine is. And I think what you said really resonates with the idea that the profession is at what what feels like a major turning point. And I think it's really up to us to say what direction it's going to go. We've talked a little bit about your own training experience and the impact it had on you. Uh, I want to ask you as a final question for some advice for students who are going through medical school right now and who want to re- retain some of the values you've described today, uh, in the integrity and professionalism, the ability to be learning for your whole, throughout your whole career, lifelong learning. How do you, and, and of course being being able to connect with patients, how do you advise students to reconcile that with all of the kind of modern pressures on time with, uh, you know, electronic record taking and the the incredible amount of documentation, the concern about safety, and all all these other issues that are kind of hanging in the air, as as well as, of course, debt and uh, years of training.
1: There are some mentors, and they aren't all old people. There are now some younger people, middle-aged people, who are mentors, and almost all the the great medical centers have these some of these people. Now they're often people who who don't have a national reputation because they don't have the time and or the inclination to do the kind of writing that it takes to develop a national reputation. But wherever you are as a student, these people exist and by and large they will help you to get jobs which uh, which will allow you to be appreciated as a a person who's a great clinician who's a humanitarian who cares about their patients and I, so I would I would certainly advise finding people like that there are some national figures of course uh, who have because people who have written about this one of my old uh, colleagues from Boston City Hospital Abraham Verghese is uh, one of those people he's written about it i think very eloquently and and is and now at stanford with his own institute aimed at bringing back the physical examination to show that it's cost effective that it's the most accurate and safest way to take care of patients and that includes the history of course so he's a person with a national impact who has, uh, who has been able to to do this but, but uh, wherever you are as a student you will find people analogous to, ch- the, to the Charles Arring in Cincinnati that I described uh, there will be people uh, like that I I would encourage people to focus on uh, what you're doing for other people and try not to think about yourself. I I think you you will be much, much happier and you will get much more out of your life if you spend more time thinking about your patients and not yourself. I, I don't think that means necessarily that you have to go into international health and you have to be Paul Farmer or something. Paul Farmer is another one of my colleagues here at the Brigham, and uh, we're all very proud of him for what he's done in global health. And I'm very proud of him, and I and I admire him enormously. But it isn't my calling. That isn't my calling. Uh, what he is doing is irreplaceable and spectacular. What I do is to try to make a difference with individual patients who who walk in my office and uh, when i go home at the end of the day sometimes i'm frustrated by one thing or another and i'll tell my wife who's in medical publishing and knows a lot about medicine say oh the day was kind of frustrating uh, today i had to do such and such a course for health stream which is a bureaucratic thing that we have to do uh, learn about hand washing or one thing or another and uh, she uh she's very wise this way. She'll say, uh, we'll sit down over a glass of wine and she'll say, tell me about your clinic this afternoon. Of course, uh, we never say, we never identify patients because of HIPAA, but uh, de-identified patients. Um, Who did you see this afternoon? And uh, I would tell her a story of somebody who came afraid that she had multiple sclerosis and actually she was just anxious, and I was able to reassure her about that. And without any tests, and without any technology, and without any excessive money spent, I could see the expression change on her face, and the whole weight of this thing lift from her. And uh, she, my wife uh, Susan, said to me, she said, "Well, now, there you are. That's a gift. That's a huge gift, right? That you, that you have. You're lucky, so lucky to be a doctor." and to be able to do that for somebody how many people have the opportunity to do that for somebody and i think what she says there is absolutely right right it doesn't have to be in uganda I mean, it's it's wonderful if it's in uganda or or if it's in haiti that's that's equally wonderful but this is this was wonderful too it's wonderful in little pieces and i think to talk to the students directly about this um, you're a young doctor you're going to be a doctor uh, no other class of person on earth has the power to do that right no one no politician uh no uh athlete n- nobody has the power to do what what you can do with the power that you, with what you learn in medical school so if you can do that i think you can have a lifelong career of happiness not every day will be perfect thinking about these matters and maintaining what I would call the traditional values of medicine and keeping it a profession.
2: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Samuels.
1: It's my pleasure. It's great to talk to you.
2: Thanks, Lakshman.
0: That was Dr. Martin Samuels, Chairman of the Department of Neurology at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, and Professor of Neurology at Harvard Medical School. If you missed the first segments of our series with Dr. Samuels, be sure to check out our webpage at www.radiorounds.org. In the meantime, remember that you can download podcasts of all past episodes. Just search the iTunes store for Radio Rounds or visit our webpage at www.radiorounds.org. You can also contact our team via email, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. All that information is at radiorounds.org. Production made possible in part by MedPlus Advantage. Providing group disability and life insurance to students and residents through participating educational institutions. Visit us at MedPlusAdvantage.com. Radio Rounds is also proudly partnered with the Student Doctor Network. Online at StudentDoctor.net. Find answers to your questions about medical school or residency programs. Ask questions in our online forums and get answers quickly. It's fast, easy, and available now at StudentDoctor.net. Of course, please remember that the views and opinions expressed on Radio Rounds are not representative of the views and opinions of the partners of Radio Rounds. Thank you so much for joining us, everyone. It's great to be back with you, and we hope you have a wonderful week. For the entire staff here at Radio Rounds, I'm Imran Ali, and one day I'll be your doctor.